0: Please stand for the reading of God's Word. As I mentioned in my prayer, we're coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in this passage, this section of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 for over a year now. And as we come into Holy Week, we are encountering these very strong statements that Jesus makes. I'll be reading from Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Hear these words of our Savior Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. My favorite commentary, because it's so deep and so devotional, is Martin Lloyd-Jones and his vast work on the Sermon on the Mount. He spends three chapters on these three verses, meaning at least three sermons. And he says of these three verses that Jesus spoke that there have never been more solemn words written or spoken in all of history. Think about that. In all of Scripture, from his perspective, these are the most solemn words. And the reason is because they come with the profound warning And they come with profound security. But if we're honest, when we read these words, when we hear these words read, they're pretty frightening. Is Jesus saying that someone can think they're going to heaven? And then on that day, and that day means the day of judgment, hear from the Savior himself, away from me, I never knew you. Yes, that's what Jesus is saying. He is saying that not only is it possible, but that many will find themselves in that place. Look with me again at the passage, verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Jesus is concluding his Sermon on the Mount. Begins with the Beatitudes, ends with the Builders. Throughout this entire time, he has been spelling out what it means to be a follower of Christ, a true disciple of Jesus. This is what it looks like. And then he comes to the end of his sermon, and he says, there are two gates, there are two roads. There is a wide gate and a wide road that leads to destruction, and many are on it. There is a narrow gate and a narrow road that leads to life, and a few are on it. He then talks about good fruit, bad fruit, good tree, bad tree false prophets, true prophets, and then he comes to this place. And this is only less than a minute before he finishes this sermon, and he gives these words, and they are arresting. Author A.W. Pink, commenting on the Sermon on the Mount, particularly this part of the Sermon on the Mount, says this. I want you to listen. He writes, Never were there so many millions of nominal Christians on earth as there are today. And by nominal, he means not a Christian, not a true Christian, somebody that might say Lord, Lord, somebody that might even be doing acts that seem to be good and signify that they might be in Christ, but they're not truly in Christ. They have false assurance. He writes, never were there so many millions of nominal Christians on earth as there are today. And never was there such a small percentage of real ones. We seriously doubt whether there has ever been a time in the history of this Christian era when there were such multitudes of deceived souls within the churches who verily believe that all is well with their souls when in fact the wrath of God abideth on them. And then he added... And we know of no single thing better calculated to undeceive them than a full and faithful exposition of these closing verses of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. That's an amazing statement. And what's really amazing about that statement is I was three years old when he wrote it. That's not a new statement. In 2023, he wrote it in 1969. Has it gotten better? I spent about 10 years away from the Bible Belt. I loved it. You kind of knew where people stood. Coming back into the Bible Belt 20 years ago, January this year, I'd forgotten I grew up in Oklahoma City, so very similar cities, Dallas and Oklahoma City. I remember seeing people at Corner Bakery every morning with their Bibles open and praying. Never saw that in St. Louis. People just praying out in the open, reading their Bibles, carrying their Bibles. Not in the Midwest. You kind of knew where people stood though. And I was reminded, as I began to serve here as the youth pastor, that in the Bible Belt, it is so easy to say the right thing to look the right way, to deceive others, but then dangerously to deceive your own self, where you think, I'm saved, I'm born again, I'm okay, I'm good, I've got the fire insurance, I've said the prayer. Is it possible that this is who Jesus is talking to? Yes. Yes, this is why it's such a solemn passage and so sobering and arresting. But also full of grace. Because today you can walk out of this sanctuary, or if you're watching online, maybe it's even weeks, months, or years from now, and you're hearing this, you can actually leave the moment you're hearing this with absolute true and full assurance. But one thing that happens in the the danger, especially the Bible Belt, is that we are tempted to enable false assurance. We are tempted to essentially help those who have false assurance continue to live in false assurance. And by his grace, Jesus is ending his sermon saying, this is my word and I am the word. There are those and there are many of them who on that day of judgment are going to say, Lord, Lord, And then they're gonna say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name do mighty works and I will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. Just to make sure you understand that. He's not saying away from me now. I don't know you in this moment. He's saying away from me, I never knew you for all eternity. We believe that as a church because we believe in the Holy Scriptures. Jesus, though, doesn't want his listeners then and now who truly are in Christ to be wallowing in unbelief, to be wallowing of whether we have assurance or not. That would make Christianity like all the other religions in the world that you won't really know until that day. And we hope by that day it's, you know, I've got a good enough list of good things versus bad and I'll be okay. That's not Christianity. Christ says in his holy word that we can have assurance. John, the apostle who put his head on the chest of hearts, said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Not so you can hope you have eternal life. Not so you can hang out just a little bit more hope and faith, but you can know today if you're in Christ, I want you to know it and live it. Today, if you're hearing this and you're like, maybe he is talking to me. I'm glad you're here. It's a grace that you're here. But I don't want to be anyone contributing to false assurance. So what I would like to do today, and I think you can stick with me, I would like to answer two absolutely critical questions to our life as it relates to this text. The first question is, what is false assurance? And am I in danger of having false assurance? That's the first question. And the second one is, what is full assurance or true assurance? and How do I get it? By the time we leave today, you're going to know the answer to those two things. Now, I know many of you, already have assurance in your own heart and mind about your salvation, Well, you've got a child or grandchildren or family members, co-workers, friends, neighbors that you're wondering about, know that none of us are the judge. But there are things that we can see that reveal to us what full assurance looks like, and there are things that we can see that show that false assurance is present. This passage does not leave us without hope. It does the opposite. So let's, let's dive in. To help, I want to do it this way. I'm going to tell you a few, about a few people. Each of them took me to a place, to a very deep dive to understand what's happening in these verses. The first had to do with my introduction into the Presbyterian Church in America. That's the denomination that we're part of that I'm so thankful for. I was going to a church in Oklahoma City called Our Lord's Community Church. It also was a Reformed church in its tradition. It's called the Reformed Church in America, the oldest denomination in our country's history. That church was formed in the 80s as two families called a minister to start it. Over a decade or so, that church grew to 2,500, 3,000 members. It's pretty remarkable. That's the church I went to right after I professed faith in Jesus. It's where my Young Life leader took me. That's where he was a member. I remember listening to the preacher pretty much in awe of what he was saying. A few years later, I graduate high school. And now, in college, I go to that church continually. And now I'm working for that church as a part-time youth intern. My first experience of seeing a minister fall took place, not in watching it happen on TV, as so much was happening like that across TV preacher world, but it was very close. It was this man. Robert Wise was his name. He had a very public, disgraceful fall. It happens. After it happens, when there's a sign of true fruitfulness in a man's life or a woman's life, There's repentance, there's surrender, there's a sadness, or there's the opposite. Bad theology, dangerous theology enters in, and suddenly you begin to justify and begin to make all sorts of decisions that show that you really are wayward. It wasn't just the sin that this man committed, but it was the gross delusion. Deception of what he now proclaimed to be true, which sent that church in a spiral. And I left, along with many other people, thinking, what is the condition of that man's soul? I don't know. I didn't know. But what does scripture have to say when somebody has that type of response later in life to the gospel? So it led me to this little bitty PCA church. I'm moving from a church of about 3,000 to a church now of about 150. The preaching was solid. I wouldn't say dynamic, though. The other church, it was dynamic, but slowly became less solid until it was not solid at all. After six months or so, the pastor of that church, Chuck Garriott, who preached my installation service almost 15 years ago, he invited me to come on staff. I served part-time for about six months as the youth director, and the youth group looked like this for you students who were here. There were two high school students and four middle school students. That was our youth group. And my first decision was to split into two groups. We have a high school youth group and a middle school youth group. What was I looking for? Well, I was looking for many of you. You students that really love the Lord. I was looking for and praying for volunteers. And the Lord really provided. It wasn't long, just a couple years in, where that youth group actually began to swell at times even larger than the congregation itself would come to events. And one of the people who was so influential in that movement was a young man named Taylor. Taylor was so on fire he invited everybody to our events. He was a zealous evangelist. One Saturday night or Friday night, I think it was probably Friday night, it was on the weekend, he calls me, and I think he's a freshman at this time, maybe an eighth grader, and he says, Mark, I have a question for you. I need to know what the sinner's prayer is again because I have a friend at my house and I'm sharing the gospel with him. I said, Taylor, that's great, it goes like this. I said, have you talked to him about the good news already? He said, yeah. He said, I've locked him in the closet and I'm not letting him come out until he prays that prayer. I was like, well, Taylor, that's not the way God wants you to do this. We talked through that. That's who he was. But one semester abroad, after he graduated high school, he no longer pronounced faith in Jesus. It was gone. Was it gone for good? Was he just on a journey? Parents, I want to pause for a minute here. That's going to be some of your children's story. They're going to come back. They're going to return. They're going to ask questions. But some might not. And right now, I don't want you to try to be God and figure out what the future for them is. You can't. But you can hear what false assurance is, and you can hear what full assurance is, and you can pray, as I do for my own children, that there will be a day that you long for and I long for where they have no doubt. But it's spring break, and I'm impressed, actually, that there are a lot of young people here. I want you to listen. There are people like you that could be here today, or you'll know later, that could give all the appearances of being a Christian, but they're really not. They check the boxes. They're members of a church. Like Robert Wise, they even filled the pulpit of a church, but they truly weren't believers. We aren't the judge. Christ is. But we can see from his scripture what is false assurance and what is full assurance. Am I in danger of false assurance? And How do I get full assurance? If you listen, maybe take a note or two, you're gonna have what you need today to know where you stand. And for all who are truly in Christ, friends, there's a freedom and a fullness to that. And for those who are here and not sure, you have the grace of God today giving you this warning. And this warning has eternal consequences. I wanna also look at a grandmother and one other person as I close the sermon in a minute. Let's talk about the first question. What is false assurance? Now, I want to be careful here. I want to look at what Jesus says it is, and not just what you might think it is. When we move towards what we might think, apart from scriptures, that's a danger in and of itself that can enable false assurance. What Jesus says is actually very clear and very, very simple. Here's what he writes. Go back to verse 21 of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what Jesus is telling us is this is how we can know if we are saved. We're going to get there in a minute. But what does false assurance look like to him? Well, first, it looks like you're in. When I did the sabbatical four years ago on spiritual warfare, 2019, I came back to you and I said, I believe one of Satan's favorite words is the word almost. That's his masterpiece. Almost right, almost true, almost beautiful, almost a church. He loves that word. And that's what you see here. What Jesus is talking about is not the person who said, I don't care about Christ. I don't care about godly things. I don't care about religion. And then they just go and live their life any way they want. You probably have friends like that. They just aren't interested and they're going to live their life any way they want. That's not who Jesus is talking about. Jesus actually shows us that the people he's referring to are those who look like the real deal, at least above the waterline. So look what they say. They say, Lord, Lord. John Stott identifies these four things about the statements they make. First, he says it's polite. The word Lord can actually be just a polite reference like the word sir, but it's more than that here. It's more than just being polite. They are acknowledging that Jesus is who he says he is. Therefore, second thing he identifies is that they're orthodox. They are saying Lord, because that's who Jesus is. Not only are they being polite and orthodox, they also have some level of zeal. Jesus says, You're saying not just Lord, but Lord, Lord. And then it goes on to show us that it's a public statement. Every person who comes to Christ Jesus has to make a profession of faith. I'm going to talk about that more in a minute. Every person. But these that he's referencing, have also made a profession. It's public, it sounds orthodox, it's full of zeal, and it's, it's a public statement. Not only that, what's what they do next? It's not just about their profession, but their lifestyle. He says on that day, verse 22, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, he repeats that phrase. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name did we not cast out demons in your name did we not do mighty works in your name you know what it sounds like christ centered and jesus still says away from me i never knew you you works you workers of lawlessness what's missing what's missing is seen in the clear phrase that jesus gives away from me, I never knew you. And the reason this is so sobering, and the reason it's so sobering then and so sobering now is that we can fake it. We can have self-deception where it's as if we're saying the right things and even doing some of the right works, and yet we've never surrendered our life to Christ. We have said, this is who he is. Well, guess what? The demons knew that. And so did their head, Satan. And so do many people who don't profess faith in Jesus. Profession is not enough. And neither are good works. Not enough. Jesus is talking about the union that exists between Christ and his people. That's where our assurance is the union that exists between people who have truly been born again, who aren't interested in just getting to heaven. They're interested in Christ being the Lord of all of their life. They love him. They want to submit to him. They want to live for him. That's what Jesus is after. This is false assurance. What does full assurance look like? I want you to hear this because if you're truly in Christ, you do not need to doubt your faith. You do not need to doubt your assurance. But it's really serious. The warning that he gives is profound, but not without hope. It has great hope. So, what is full assurance? Go back to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So I want to give you three things. This is not now a three point sermon that's going to last a lot longer. These are three sub points, but I pray you never forget them. Because when you're wondering about your own life, or you're wondering about the life of someone else, these are the three things That the word of God clearly shows us are in the life of somebody who has truly believed. The first is this, those who are truly in Christ are marked by a profession of faith. There is a point in the life of every believer where they will profess faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you know the exact day. You can see it in your mind. I can, June 23rd, 1982. Some of you don't have a day like that, and that's okay. You have a season or a stage of life, or you might say, around the time I was five or 15, I began to sense the Lord's work. Some of you, it was an immediate decision. For some of you, it took a little bit longer. Some of you today, I believe, are on your way. I hope you're listening. But for every true follower of Christ, everyone who can have full assurance, there is a profession of faith. Like those who had the false profession, we must say, Lord, Lord. There had to be a point where you said, I trust Jesus alone for my salvation. The warning is that you could have done that and it not been real. That's why the next two things are important. But before I move on, the profession must be made by all who are in Christ. One more thing on profession though. Our profession is not just a past tense event. Our profession is a present moment. If I wanna know whether I'm actually saved or not, I don't need to go back to June 23rd, 1982. I can say today I woke up with a desire for the Lord, that I would not have had if he didn't give it to me. That's a present profession of faith. He is at work in my, day, in my life today just as he was in 1982. Second thing, beyond profession of faith, full assurance is seen in an individual. It's marked by the presence of fruitfulness. We as a church believe that we are saved by faith alone. It is not by works. None of us could ever, like those he mentioned, say, look what I did, look what I did, look what I did. And he would say, oh my, welcome. We are saved by faith alone. But we are saved by faith alone, but by a faith that is never alone. And what that means is that when a true work of faith has taken place, a dead heart spiritually for God began to beat. A mind that couldn't think right about the Lord began to think right. A will that didn't want anything to do with God now wants to surrender to God. So in the life of every true believer, there is the presence of fruitfulness. There is not the present of perfection. That's why we had to have a savior who was perfect. But there is the presence of fruitfulness. Jesus says it. He could not be more clear. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father. Well, what is the will of his father? That's what Jesus has been preaching. From the very beginning of the Beatitudes, Jesus gives us the character of the followers of Christ, all the way to the last thing he's going to say, which we'll see next week, that there is a wise builder and a foolish builder. This sermon is climaxing here in the conclusion with Jesus saying, you're either on the wide road or the narrow road. You're either bearing good fruit or bad fruit. You are either truly in me or you are not. You're either the wise builder or the foolish builder. True believers have the presence of fruitfulness in their life. John's gospel says it this way. John 15, he's speaking about abide. And then Jesus says, recorded by John, It is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, so proving to be my disciples. I don't have to go back to June twenty third, 1982 to prove I'm a disciple. I can say by his grace and for his glory there's fruit in my life now which I could not have created but because I've abided in him there's fruitfulness. Others can see it. Full assurance is marked by that profession of faith and by the presence of fruit. Again, not perfection. That's why Jesus began his sermon with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's why he ends it with Are you building as a wise builder or a foolish builder on me and my word? So the third one is this profession of faith, the presence of fruit, and the last one is perseverance. I don't know where Robert Wise's life ended. I don't even know if he's still alive, that pastor I served under. Taylor, to the best of my knowledge, has never come back to a place where he's fully surrendered to Christ. Though the last time we talked, there was certainly progress. I don't give up hope. But those who are truly in Christ are going to persevere in Christ to the end. Perseverance doesn't look like never struggling. Perseverance doesn't look like never drifting. We sing about it all the time. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We know people who have done that. We have done that. I pray the public confession with the congregation at nine thirty and eleven, because in between I have sinned. We are sinners the side of heaven we're prone to wander. But when I sin, when true believers sin and the Spirit convicts them, there's there's a desire not to sin or there is a desire to desire not to sin. That's fruitfulness. That's the presence of God in your life. It's the sign that He is persevering you because He said, He who started it will bring it to completion. Perseverance of the saints is the doctrine I'm talking about. It's something we cling to in great hope. The center of it, though, is not our ability to persevere. It's God preserving us. It's God who's giving us everything we need to be the people who profess his name, who have lives that bear fruit, who recognize that apart from him, we could do nothing. The two questions. What is false assurance? It can look a lot like the real thing. But those who are living with false assurance, with self-deception, I pray you hear the word today and recognize that there is a judgment day coming. And whenever that day is, if you have not truly professed faith in Jesus, more than just the name and the title, but you have not rested and received in Him alone for salvation, you are in danger of hearing those words. If today you care nothing about that, that's a clear sign of where you are. If today you hear that and are like, I don't want to be unsure, I want to know, well, fear is a good sign. That the Spirit of God is working in your life. And even this day, you could come forward. We can talk. We can pray. You can leave this place, talk to another person. And you can pray, Jesus, save me. I surrender my life to you." you. And he will. And you are his forever. If you want to know if it's going to be real, you'll see the presence of fruit. You will see his persevering work in your life. For those today who know that you're in Christ, live that way. You have full assurance, and that's a gift of grace. But remember in constant humility, he did not save you because of you. And what he saw you could be, he simply saved you because he loves you, wants you, gave his son for you. I mentioned that I wanted to bring up a grandma. Serving as a youth pastor for almost 25 years, I've been in lots of conferences where the gospels proclaimed to a mixed audience of those who have faith, those who don't. Oftentimes during the week, there's a moment when the cross is proclaimed and the call to surrender your life to Christ is given. You've seen those events, some of you have been in them even recently. It's powerful to watch the spirit move and people come forward for salvation. And I know as that happens, some of them might not be true believers. They may be saying, Lord, Lord, not mean it, but I'm confident that there are some who do. I was in Point Loma, California, speaking to about 3,000 students about 22, 23 years ago. And as I was there, calling on people to come forward. There were teams there to pray with those students. But one individual wanted to see me, and I was so surprised by what I saw. It wasn't a student. It was a woman well into her 80s. And she comes to me and she says, I've come to pray for salvation. I've grown up in the church my entire life. I've been a member of a few churches. Each time I've kind of knew what to say, but until tonight I never knew, I've never surrendered. What courage. She was there just to see her granddaughter who was visiting from out of state. The Lord had brought her there to show her that even in her ripe old age, She had said, Lord, Lord, and done many things, but never surrendered her life to Christ. That could be you. If you don't want it to be, do what she did. Come to Jesus today. The last story has to do with our own Florida trip. Where a number of years ago, one of our leaders, somebody that was recruited, somebody who said the right things, was sitting listening to the word proclaimed. And there he himself, though he had been leading students, even in Bible study, said, I don't know the Lord. I am not a Christian. And he had the courage to say it then and pray for salvation. I don't think I would have done that. I think I would have waited till I got home, continued to fake it. That's what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to almost get there, almost have the truth. But what Jesus is saying is so important that he's saying, deal with this now. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. What is the will of the Father? That you profess faith in Jesus alone. What is the will of the Father? that you abiding in Christ live a life that bears fruit. It brings him great pleasure and glory. What is the will of the Father? That you and I in Christ experience the perseverance that he gives us to stand in him until the very end. That assurance, that assurance is given to all who are truly in Christ. Are you in Christ? Do you have that full assurance? That's how you get it. Or are you still living with lip service, with a false assurance, a self-deception? Friends, I think it's been clear. Do what the Lord is calling you to do. Surrender your life. him. Father in heaven, every person in here, if they're listening, is sobered by these words. But all who are truly in Christ, Lord, we don't have to leave frightened or fearful. We can leave in the confidence that we truly have professed faith. There's fruit. There's evidence that we're persevering. But Lord, for those who've come and maybe never even known they weren't truly saved, May this be be the day, the moment when you reveal to them who you are. And may it move from mere lip service and lifestyle to a profound sense of resting in you for all eternity. Draw us near, Lord. In this culture that we live in, Father, don't let us be a church that enables false assurance. But also let us remember that we can't judge. There are those in our midst who have wondered and are wondering. God, let us not lose hope. Keep our eyes fixed on you, for you alone are the one who can draw them in. Oh, Lord, please do that. Have mercy. Show our loved ones who you are. Bring them, too, to saving faith and full assurance. Lord, as we sing this very familiar hymn, let us be present for a little bit longer. Let us hear again what you've done that we might live for you forever. And let that calling, love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let that be a joy to our souls to sing as we once again surrender to you. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Please stand.